Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open air pulpit. What a busy few weeks it's been. Not only did we do a great outreach in June, 15 plus thousand tracks, daily Bible studies, which are now being uploaded every week. So go to our backup channel on YouTube, excatholicsofchrist.com. But with the outreach concluding, Britain voted to leave the European Union. And uh, who saw that coming? My thoughts were that Britain would vote to remain in the EU, much like the Scots would vote to remain in the Union. Well, the British people have voted to come out of the EU, and what a blessing indeed. For the first time, what, 40 plus years, Britain is now independent, sovereign. And I guess the last time Britain was independent, such as she now is, will be back in 1939, when Britain stood against Nazi Germany and uh, the cruel regime known as the Emperor of Japan. Let's see what happens over the next few weeks and months, but with the fallout within the European Union of Britain pulling out, and who knows, maybe that could be the end of the EU, let's hope so. Let's see what's going to happen now, because once Britain came out of the EU, the New World Order went on hold. Temporarily, of course, I'm no, I'm no doubt the good old boys and girls will get things up and running again, but in the short term, Britain is out of the EU, and therefore let's see what's going to happen. But with the shock exit of Britain leaving the EU, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, resigned. And as of this week, we have a new Prime Minister, a lady called Mrs May, who was responsible for bringing in same-sex marriage. She drafted the legislation, which went before Parliament. And thanks to Mrs May, Britain now has same-sex marriage in the, in the UK. Not the EU, the UK, although most of Europe is pro that. And yet what was interesting to me around that time, that Mrs May drafted the legislation that made it mandatory for those living in this country to accept same-sex marriage, even though none of the political parties put it in the manifestos, she was diagnosed with diabetes. Interesting, is it not? But what was interesting before her announcement to the country of becoming Prime Minister was how her opponent, another lady, was smeared by the press because she was a conservative Christian. I'm not sure if she was born again or not. I have no idea if she is saved or not, but she was claiming to be a Christian and she was claiming to uh, believe in heterosexual marriage and she was anti-abortion. Well, of course, that couldn't do. This country now has turned its back on God and therefore the powers that be decided to smear her and therefore she pulled out of the campaign to contest, I should, I should say, the uh, leadership of the Conservative Party and with her exit, her opponent, Mrs May, was elected leader of the Conservative Party which now makes her Prime Minister. So we've got a female Prime Minister, we've got a female leader in Scotland and we've got a female leader in Northern Ireland. And my feeling is that come November, America will have a female president. And you know that when women take the office, whether it's the premiership, the presidency, or in the realm of the religious world, you know that you are in trouble. The Lord Jesus Christ never chose any females to be his apostles or disciples. All the books in the Bible were written by men. The Apostle Paul and Peter and James never 
appointed any woman to be an apostle or a disciple. The fact of the matter is that the Old Testament prophets were all men. The Old Testament leaders were all men, being kings, of course. And as I say, Jesus Christ chose men to be his apostles. On top of that, he was a man. He didn't come as a woman, he was a man. And therefore, his apostles appointed men to be elders over the local church. So it's very interesting how far Britain has strayed uh, from the Word of God, and yet to watch Mr. Cameron outside Downing Street almost crying over the fact that he's been forced to resign, and yet he brought in same-sex marriage, which nobody voted for. It wasn't part of any of the parties manifestos, and yet, thanks to Mr. Cameron, he's given us same-sex marriage. Well, when he arrives in eternity, he can say to the Lord, God, how proud he was to do such a thing. And he will be somewhat shocked, I put it to you. But keep the UK in prayer. I'll say this also very briefly before I get into the main message of this uh, broadcast. What is probably going to happen is now we've got a new prime minister. They will negotiate to come out of the EU. And I think what's going to happen is this, that that will take its course, but probably by the next election, which is going to be 2020, the opposition party and maybe some of the other parties will put into the manifestos a clause which says, if you vote for us, we'll take you back into the EU. And that will be their way to get Britain back into the European Union. I hope I'm wrong when I say that, but that's my feeling. But in the short term, Britain will come out of the EU and Britain can breathe again. And for Britain, uh, for Britons, for Christians in this country, it's an interesting time to see what's going to happen. People are saying that the pound is going to crash. I don't believe that. People are saying there'll be riots in the streets. I don't believe that. Britain's a very resilient country. She stood against the Nazis back in 1939 for two years before America came, America came into the war. And she stood against many evils uh, up until her entrance into the EU back in the 1970s. But... I don't spend too much time discussing this because we are non-partisan at Ex-Catholics of Christ, but I know some of you have been interested to know what we think about what's been happening in the UK. Well, there you are. That's what we think. We think it's uh, a victory for those that voted to come out. <coughs> and we are also very much intrigued to see what's going to happen next. But uh, it just goes to show that if you are religious, lowercase r, of course, and if you claim to be a Christian, lowercase c, just watch out for the media to turn on you and to rip you to shreds. But for this morning, what I want to do is just give a recap as to where I'm currently at, going through Acts of the Apostles. Last Sunday, I was able to finish Acts 25, and I'm hoping, uh, optimistically, <laughs> that Lord willing, by the last Sunday of July, Acts of the Apostles will be finished. And if I can reach that goal, if I can achieve that, and please keep me in your prayers to do just that, then Lord willing, come August, I will start Revelation. But for this morning, I want to give a recap as to what I've looked at over the past several weeks. And for this morning, I want to cover some verses from Acts 19, Acts 20, and Acts 21. Let's start, if we may, from Acts 19, verse 1. And it came to pass... That while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And this piece of scripture gets cited by charismatics, 
who hold to the teaching of what is called the second blessing. And what they uh, believe that to be is simply this, that when you got saved, it wasn't enough just to be saved. In other words, when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't enough just to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Lordship Salvation crew. But they go one step further. They want you to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. And they call this a second blessing. And yet the Word of God tells us from Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, how by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And therefore, what is going on? Well, here you've got a group of disciples in verse 1, and this is what causes the confusion, that have come into contact with Paul. And Paul says to this group of individuals, referred to as disciples, from verse 1, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? A somewhat unusual question to ask a certain group of people. But because our charismatic friends believe that this group are saved, I will approach the scripture like this. Let's say you are saved, and let's say I was to approach on the street and ask you, since you believed, have you received the Holy Ghost? You'd probably laugh in my face. And of course I have, James. I'm born again, washing the blood. What's going on here? We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And if you were to respond like that, I would say to myself, this group of people aren't saved. How can you be saved and not know about the Holy Ghost? Romans 8 says, if you haven't got the Holy Ghost, you're not saved. Therefore, what is going on here? Look at verse 3. And he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. You've got a group of individuals, probably proselytes, that were baptized by John, Matthew chapter 3, who were somehow affiliated with Apollos, Acts chapter 18, and therefore are not yet born again. To think that a Jew wouldn't know who the Holy Ghost was is somewhat troubling. To think that a saved person, a Jew or Gentile, not knowing who the Holy Ghost is would be even more troubling. No, what you got here are a group of disciples of John the Baptist, probably proselytes to Judaism, hence why they don't know who the Holy Ghost is. Unto what then were you baptized? What's going on here, he says. And they said, unto John's baptism. Which means this quite simply, they were put into water. Water puts you into water. So if you're trusting in that to save you, you're lost. Paul would tell you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how he wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're saved by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are kept saved by your faith in the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 4. And then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which had come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. John got people ready for the coming Messiah, hence why he baptized people in public. And they came to John and they confessed their sins to God before going into the water. So John at best would prepare people for the coming Messiah, but that baptism of John's couldn't save anybody. And if you are trusting in your baptism to be saved, you're lost. It's as simple as that. You need to be washed in the blood. 
and also from verse 4, that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. You can't miss it. You're saved by believing, and you are damned by not believing. Look at verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. To be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus means to be baptized with the authority of Jesus, which means this, that Jesus Christ gave Paul and Peter and you and I, if we're saved, the authority to baptize new believers. And yet the one is come along, and the one is crowd say that Jesus is the Father, the Holy Ghost is the Father, and therefore they baptize in the name singular of Jesus. No, that's incorrect. Jesus Christ is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Ghost. There's an account in the Gospels, in fact there's two accounts, when Jesus Christ was being baptized by John the Baptist, and it says how his father spoke from heaven, and he said, this is my beloved son. You've got the father speaking to the son. Also, you've got the son speaking to the father. Uh, there's also an account from John's gospel. I think it's John, uh, John chapter 12, when the father speaks to the son. There's people standing around, and they say to themselves, was it an angel that spoke to him, or was it thunder? They had no idea what was going on. You've got the father speaking to the son. And if you go back to the book of Isaiah, you've got at least seven accounts of God the Father speaking to God the Son, and God the Son speaking to God the Father. And on top of that, if you go to Psalm chapter 2, you've got God the Father speaking to God the Son, and vice versa. Or vice versa. And when they heard this, they were baptized, total immersion, in the name, with the authority of the Lord Jesus. Lord denoting his deity. And Jesus, of course, being his human name, meaning Jehovah saves. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. This would be the last time that Paul, or Peter, or James, or John, or anybody for that matter, would lay hands on anybody to receive the Holy Ghost. On top of that, this group spoke with tongues and prophesied. And this is why the charismatics like to quote this piece of scripture because they say that unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. And yet, I like to, I like to remind such people that when the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, got saved, he didn't speak in tongues. When the Philippian jailer got saved, Acts chapter 16, he didn't speak in tongues. When Paul the Apostle got saved, Acts chapter 9, he didn't speak in tongues. And people say, how about that scripture over in Corinthians when Paul says he spoke with the tongues of angels? And they think that is in reference to speaking in tongues. Well, two things. First of all, Paul was a traveling evangelist, and he would travel the Roman Empire preaching the gospel, and therefore he needed the gift of tongues to articulate the plan of salvation to those that he would come into contact with. Secondly, Paul went to the third heaven, and he saw things he couldn't explain, he couldn't reveal, and therefore maybe he was communicating with angels in heaven. But apart from that account, why would you need to speak with the tongues of angels if you are living and saved today? You wouldn't, of course. Look at verse 7. And all the men were about 12. You've got a group of men, not women. You've got a group of Jewish proselytes, not Christians, not saved people that have got saved by hearing what Paul has told them. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And on top of that, Paul has laid his hands on them to receive the Holy Ghost. And yet from Acts 18, 
Look at verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. No laying on hands, no speaking in tongues, and no prophesying. You've got a leader of a synagogue who's heard the gospel with all his house, and after hearing the gospel and believing, he gets baptized. But Crispus doesn't speak in tongues. No one lays their hands on him, and yet he's saved nevertheless. If you take the time to read Acts of the Apostles, you will see several things going on. First of all, you will see that from Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost comes on the apostles, being men, not women, and the apostles speak with tongues, known languages, around 12 different languages. From Acts 2, you go to Acts chapter 10, and you come across Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who has converted to Judaism. And he's searching for the Lord, and the Lord rewards that uh, faithfulness, rewards that uh, searching, and he sends Peter and some of his friends to witness to Cornelius. And they go into the home of Cornelius, and as they are speaking to Cornelius and co, the Holy Ghost comes on them, and they start to speak with tongues. No laying on of hands. And that was done because Paul's companions didn't believe that the Gentiles would be saved the same way that they were saved. And then we go to this piece of scripture, Acts chapter 19. We get a group of men, not women, proselytes to Judaism. And they hear the word of God from Paul. And they need someone like Paul to lay their hands on them to be saved, to receive the Holy Ghost and to speak with tongues. And yet that didn't happen back in Acts 2. That didn't happen back in Acts chapter 10. And this was the only place that it did happen from Acts chapter 19. But the key to all of these uh, verses and my overall view of this would be verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? Well, you've got a group of Jewish proselytes that are probably members of this synagogue. And Corinth was one of the main churches that Paul spent a lot of time with. And he got two of their leaders saved, and therefore that's why the sign gifts are spoken of so frequently from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. You've got saved Jews in Corinth come into contact with unsaved Jews, and therefore tongues is a sign to unbelieving Israel. It's a rebuke, and that's why the early church, which were predominantly Jews, spoke in tongues. Because the people of Israel, for the most part, rejected God the Father, Old Testament. They rejected God the Son, New Testament. They rejected God the Holy Ghost, Book of Acts. And therefore the Lord says, okay, if you won't listen to my prophets who are speaking in Hebrew and Aramaic, that's not going to reach you. If you won't understand Greek, then I'm going to speak in tongues. And I'll do it as a sign of judgment against you. So one final time, from Acts 19, 1 down to 7, or down to 8, you've got... Men receiving the gift of tongues, prophesying, probably in the sense of praising God. I don't think they are on the same scale as Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or Isaiah. More likely to be like Philip's daughters, worshipping the Lord, uh, giving him glory, so on and so forth. And those men, around 12, are affiliated to this synagogue in verse 8. 
And they probably go into that synagogue in verse 8 and start speaking in tongues. A repeat of Acts chapter 2. And yet today, you've got men and women, mainly Gentile, blabbering in tongues, learned behavior. And you were told at the end of 1 Corinthians that if any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. People say, what's it all about? Well, quite simply this, that Paul was of the opinion that the Corinthians were very carnal, mainly Jewish, although some Gentile, and therefore you've got saved Corinthians, hard to believe, but it's true, saved people, saved men, and yet some of those individuals were quite likely speaking in a foreign tongue, an unknown tongue, gibberish perhaps, but maybe even more sinister than that, they were cursing Christ as they spoke in tongues. And that's why if you come into contact with those who speak in tongues, it's somewhat eerie, is it not? I remember years ago speaking to somebody speaking in tongues, and I said to this person, what are you saying? And he said to me, I have no idea what I'm saying, but it feels pretty good. I thought, what a strange thing to say. If any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. That's the frightening reality when it comes to speaking in tongues, that for such people, there's every chance they are cursing Christ. And yet, I'm going to be somewhat compassionate and say this, that most of what you see and hear when it comes to tongues is probably <coughs> learned behavior. You can learn to speak in tongues. You can pick this up very easily. And therefore, <coughs> it's probably harmless for the most part. And yet, I can't rule out the possibility of most of today's crowd speaking in tongues, or maybe a good number of today's crowd that speak in tongues are doing so. And on top of that, they are cursing Christ as they speak in tongues. You've got to remember this, that Catholics speak in tongues. Mormons speak in tongues. Native Americans speak in tongues. There was a Hollywood movie that I watched many years ago before I was saved. <clears throat> and there was an actor who plays this crazy kind of a guy. And he speaks in tongues during the film. A Hollywood actor, an A-star, if I was to name him, you'd all know him. And he speaks in tongues. You can speak in tongues if you practice it enough. I remember some years ago watching online Derek Prince teaching a group of men and women how to speak in tongues. And it was somewhat eerie to watch, and he made it quite clear to them that if they followed his guide, they too could speak in tongues. No one in the New Testament ever spoke to anybody or taught anyone else how to speak in tongues. It was a supernatural gift given to a group of men, never women, as a sign of judgment to unbelieving Israel. You can't teach a man or woman to speak in tongues. You can pick it up, you can go into a typical assembly and listen to people speaking in tongues. I'll grant you that. And after maybe a few weeks or months, copy them, mimic them. You can do that. But to actually teach somebody to speak in tongues, a known language, is impossible. Jump over, please, to verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. People say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, he is, but not concerning the gifts of the Spirit. For example, Jesus Christ is no longer on the earth. Jesus Christ is no longer a little baby. Jesus Christ is no longer hanging on a cross. That text from Hebrews 13.8 gets quoted by the Charismatics and others to suggest that the gifts are still for today that Christ 
is still operating the same way that he was when he was here on the earth. No, it's simply speaking about his eternal attributes. That he's still God, that he's still man, that he is now our eternal high priest. It has nothing to do whatsoever with his presence here on the earth. But here, Paul, not you, has been given a special anointing, not you. And here, Paul would write half the New Testament, not you. And here, Paul was still very much traveling around, preaching the gospel, unlike you, getting people saved, unlike most people. And therefore, Paul, as an apostle, unlike you, needed the sign gifts to affirm his ministry. And yet, look at verse 13. Friday the 13th, 666. Then certain the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. Within one verse, you've got a counterfeit attack. Within one verse, you've got a group of Jews, exorcists, a term we hear today concerning priests, which apparently, allegedly, can cast out spirits from un, uh, unsaved people, ungodly people, possessed people. I'm not overly sure about that. I think many of those priests are possessed with unclean spirits. But within one verse of Paul being commissioned to heal people of diseases and evil spirits, so on and so forth, you've got a group of vagabond Jews, exorcists, which take upon themselves to cast over them, which are evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. If you don't believe me, just go onto your local street and preach about Jesus Christ. Go into your local bar, or go into your local gay community, or go down to your local red light district and preach Jesus. You see what happens. And this crowd of people are preaching, are attempting to cast out evil spirits using the name, using the authority, of Jesus, going back to 19, verse 5, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. What a foolish thing to do. You've got unsaved Jews that probably heard the gospel, rejected it, hence why Acts 19, 1 down to 8, saved Jews are speaking in tongues as a rebuke to unbelieving Jews. And therefore this group not only have rejected the gospel, but they're trying to get in on the action. 14, and there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. You've got a chief Jew trying to mimic, trying to duplicate, trying to counterfeit what Paul the Apostle had been able to do. And that's what tongues, for the most part, is all about today. It's a counterfeit. Tongues in the New Testament, one more time, were known languages given to men, never women. And you were told very clearly from Corinthians 12 to 14, that if you're in an assembly where tongues are being used, never more than two or three men, never when unsaved people are present, and always with an interpreter present. And yet when do you see that being enforced today? How about never, or very rarely? Look at verse 14. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? What a shock. What a response. I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? If you're saved, the devil hates you, and he knows you. And that's why if you are a saved man or woman, you're always up against it, right? 
You're tempted day and night. You're buffeted day and night. You struggle, correct? You struggle, you're tempted because you are saved and the devil wants to ruin you. But rest assured and take great comfort in the fact that if that's happening to you, that's God's permissive will. So sit tight, don't panic, don't have a meltdown. You are going through a trial and tribulation because you belong to the Lord. And the man whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. So that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What a thing to behold. You've got this man in whom the evil spirit was leaping on them. This group of Jewish exorcists overcoming them, prevailing against them, and they flee from the house naked and wounded. They could have been killed. And yet by the Lord's mercy, he wouldn't allow these unclean spirits, this unclean spirit to kill this group of unbelieving Jews, but it was done as a warning to this group of unsaved Jews not to mess with the devil. And if you are an unsaved man or woman doing a Ouija boards or consulting clairvoyance, watch out. You're playing with fire. 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell in them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I bet it was. You've got Paul arriving in town, casting people left, right and centre, or healing people, I should say, of all sorts of sicknesses, left, right and centre, banishing disease, demon possession. And you've got this group of unbelieving Jews trying to counterfeit, trying to get in on the action, trying to get a crowd to follow them. And that's what you see today. You've got many charismatics, prosperity preachers going around trying to counterfeit the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens time after time. Fear fell on them all. Fear is a good thing. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fear of man bringeth a snare. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. God has put his word above his name. There's power in the name of Jesus. If you're saved and are struggling, plead the blood of Christ. Call the name of the Lord Jesus if you want to be saved, to be saved. Look at verse 18, please. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. This is similar to what happened from Matthew chapter 3, when John was baptizing people. It says how they came and confessed their sins. Not to John. John wasn't a priest, he was a prophet. They confessed their sins to God and then were baptized in water. And here, and many that believed, that's what saves you, came and confessed to Almighty God and showed their deeds. You've got confession to God, which is Romans chapter 4, which is justification in the sight of God. And you've got showing their deeds to others, which is James chapter 2, justification in the sight of man. And that's something which the Catholics could never get right. Even Martin Luther struggled to get that right. But in a nutshell, it means this, that when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, God sees that. Because God looks on the heart, which would be Romans chapter 4, which is what saves you, whereas man looks on the outward appearance. James chapter 2, which is what people see. 
So you're saved by believing, and that's what God sees. And when he sees that, he saves you. And then once you are saved by believing, you get baptized. If you can, by total immersion, which is seen by others. Justification in the sight of man. That's what Abraham was doing with Isaac. Look at verse 19, please. Many of them also which used curious arts put their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. What a true picture of heartfelt repentance. You've got a group of people which were using curious arts, black magic, white magic, spells, so on and so forth. And they bring their books together and have a public burning, a bonfire. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. A small fortune. And if I was to spiritualize that for today, I'd say this, that you come to the Lord as a sinner, you get saved as a sinner, and know that you've got baggage. And if you are a man, maybe you have pornography problems, and therefore when you get saved, you burn all your porno videos, books, DVDs. If you're a woman, maybe you're into makeup or expensive clothing, Maybe you're going to burn all of that because it can become an idol. Or maybe you're into nice cars or you like to live the highlight, a high life. Maybe you have boats. Maybe you go on holiday two or three times a year. Those things become idols to you. And therefore, when you come to the Lord, you want to leave all that behind. Live a simple life. Let your moderation be known to all men. And yet most Christians come to the Lord with a lot of baggage and they retain that baggage and they become fruitless. They don't do anything for the Lord. And they become a great disappointment to the Lord. And yet leave it all behind at the cross. This early crowd did, and no doubt were blessed mightily. Look at verse 23, please. And the same time there rose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see in here, that not alone at Ephesus, but almost at all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshippeth. Paul was a rebel rouser. Paul would breeze into a town and turn it upside down. And here you've got a silversmith, 24, who made shrines for Diana. And when I first read this some weeks ago, I thought to, my, I thought to myself, look at Mary. Diana in the Old Testament was a picture of Mary in the church age. The ancient world worshipped Diana like the Catholics worshipped Mary. And I'll tell you this, that idols, images and statues in the Catholic church is big business. So much so that they make a living off it from 25, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation. Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Most of what the Catholic church is worth is based primarily on indulgences, going to Lewis, Fatima or Medjugorje, visiting a local priest to say a mass for your late mother or father, so on and so forth, and that money gets put into property. 
and the Catholic Church owns a lot of land. They, they own much of Israel. But this man, Demetrius, is very much aware that Paul is a problem to him. Paul isn't ecumenical. Paul is very much a believer that you only save one way, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, praise the Lord for that, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So out goes the mass. You say, what do you mean, James? Well, the priest, when he holds up the wafer, he will say, this is the body of Christ, and Catholics go down their knees, because they believe that the wafer becomes the literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he holds up the chalice, they believe that the wine becomes literal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here Paul is being quoted as saying that's not the case, that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, let's hope so, but also that the temple, your local Catholic church, of the great goddess Diana, which worships Mary, should be despised, let's hope so, it's an abomination to the Lord, and her magnificence should be destroyed, in a spiritual sense, not physical for today, whom all Asia, whom all the Catholic world, worships. Nothing new under the sun. And if you are a Catholic going to Mass, if you are a Catholic saying the Rosary, if you are a Catholic which genuflects, every time the priest holds up the wafer, you are an abomination, as is your church. God hates that system. He told you that from Revelation 18, and he told you to come out of that system because you're going to destroy it. Look at 28. When they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when they Catholics heard these sayings from Bible-believing Christians, they were full of wrath. And for centuries maybe 1,800 years to be precise, they killed 50 million people which refused to bow the knee to the Pope and Mary and cried out saying, Great is Mary, the mother of God. Nothing new under the sun whatsoever. Jump over please to chapter 20 and take a look, if you will, at verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. We being Paul, we being Luke, we being Timothy, and no doubt other saved Jews. Not Gentiles. And therefore, if you are a Gentile, keeping the feast days, you're technically in the wrong dispensation. On top of that, you have no right, you have no need to do such a thing. The early church were mainly Jews, as I keep saying, and they kept the feast days until the temple went down around 70 AD. Look at verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, being a Sunday, not a Saturday, when the disciples, men, women, it makes no difference, came together to break bread. If you're saved, you should break bread at least once a week. And if you can do it with others, go for it. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued to speech until midnight. So the early church met on a Sunday, being the first day of the week, to break bread, but the Jewish element met on the Sabbath to keep the feast days. You've got two aspects to the early church. You've got the Jews keeping the Sabbath, 
and no doubt going to local synagogues to preach to unbelieving Jews to get them saved. But on top of that, you've got the Jews which were saved in the early church meeting in the local synagogues, keeping the feast days and the Sabbath, so on and so forth, because that is part of the Old Testament covenant with the Jews. And yet, on the first day of the week, you've got Jew and Gentile coming together to break bread. And therefore, if you are a saved Gentile, keeping the Sabbath, technically you are back under the law. If you are a Gentile, keeping the feast days, technically you are back under the law. Yes, you have liberty to do so, Romans chapter 14, but the book of Galatians is pretty clear that to do such a thing is bordering on such a person falling from grace. Jump over to verse 17, please. And from Miletius, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church. Elders being men, not women. Elders, not priests. This is a Jewish book written by Jewish men. I'm sorry that's a shock to certain people, but that's just how it is. Almighty God is spoken of as being masculine, not feminine. And he sent his son, not his daughter, to die for the sins of the world. And if you trust in his son, not his daughter, you are saved. And his son sent men to be his apostles, to write the New Testament. And Paul, being a man, ordained men to be elders in local churches, not sisters, not women. And when they were come to him, verse 18, he said unto them, You know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have talked to you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He went house to house, preaching to the elders, saved people, not lost people. And therefore, when you get the JWs going door to door and trying to use this to justify that, you know that it's actually incorrect. Paul is speaking to saved people, not unsaved people, and he's gone from house to house to further enlighten them, to further equip them about the things of the Lord. Testifying both to the Jews, his crowd, and also the Greeks, being Gentiles, repentance, change your mind, change your heart, a change of direction toward God, being this, that there's only one God, and therefore many of the Greeks and Gentiles in the first century were polytheists, and part of their repentance was to stop worshipping or stop believing in many gods and start believing in one God and then have faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what saves you, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I teach repentance. I tell sinners to repent and I clarify it. I tell them that it means to be sorry for who you are and what you are. There should be a conviction of sin before a person gets saved, otherwise such a person will be a stillborn. Such a person will be a false convert. Many tears and temptations being trials from 19, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. The Jews hated Paul. The Jews hated their kings and prophets back in the Old Testament. And the Jews hated their Messiah. And therefore, because of that, 
they were cast off and we get grafted in. Romans chapter 11. And therefore, for now, for the church age, we are the people of God. And yet, when the rapture comes, Revelation chapter 4, Almighty God goes back to Israel and starts to work with them once again. But Paul's ministry was to testify both to the Jews and also the Greeks' repentance toward God. Only one God, not many gods, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no works involved there. There's no turning from sins to be saved. There's no baptism or circumcision or tithing to be saved. Come as you are, and you should be broken. You should be sorrowful over your wretched state, and then turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will save you, and he will keep you safe to the uttermost. 26, wherefore I take to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. What a statement to make. I am pure, I am guilt-free of the blood of all men. Now, could you say that? If you are a Bible teacher, could you say that? Never mind making videos on YouTube. Do you tell your neighbours about Jesus Christ? Do you go door to door? Do you go to your local market and tell people about Jesus Christ? Now, I grant you this, that Paul is speaking to save people here. And therefore, he's, he's speaking about the oracles of God. He's saying this, that I'm going to be leaving you eventually. I won't be here forever. And when I've gone, my work is done. But I'm going to apply this in a spiritual sense and say this, that we, as saved people, we as disciples of the Lord, male or female, makes no difference, we should be able to say to some extent that we are no longer responsible for the blood of all men, that we've been able to witness to friends and family, neighbours, colleagues, that we don't keep this to ourselves. 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, Old Testament, New Testament, take heed therefore unto yourselves and all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, not priests, but elders, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, being Jesus Christ, of course, which shows quite clearly that Jesus Christ is Almighty God. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to come from within, not without. The Gnostics, perhaps, I know that the Catholic Church down the line. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Like all these denominations, on top of that, they're going to turn around from 2 Peter 2.1 and deny the Lord that bought them. They're going to teach a faith and works package. They're going to teach you need to worship Mary. They're going to teach that the word of God can't be trusted, that you need the magisterium of the church. Therefore watch and remember, 31, that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul is warning the church of what is going to occur. Like Moses did before he died, he warned the children of Israel what would occur when he was dead and buried. And here Paul is very much following that line. Enemies are going to come from within, not without. They're going to devour the flock. They're going to, they're going to teach damnable heresies. And many people, not some, but many people, are going to follow such teachers to hell. That's why it's imperative, if you're born again, to make your calling and election sure, to get under the blood, to read the word of God, to have a good prayer life, because you are not immune from being deceived. Twenty-one, eighteen, And the day following, Paul went 
In with us unto James, and all the elders were present. James, the Lord's half-brother, no mention of Peter, no mention of any pope anywhere, just a mention of James and all of the elders. Again, not priests, elders. Men, never women, and for the most part married, although that's not mandatory. Uh, Paul wasn't married, and yet he was an elder. John, the son of Zebedee, wasn't married, and yet he was an elder. So you don't have to be married to be an elder, but to be an elder means you are a man. There are no women that are elders, just men. 19. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Because the early church were mainly Jewish, they were constantly grappling about what to do about the Gentiles. And Paul, this great Jew, who saved so many people, who got so many people saved, was a great blessing to the early church. And I think if it hadn't been for Paul, the early church would have just stayed in Jerusalem and struggled to go outside of Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus called Paul to preach to the Gentiles, whereas the apostles, for the most part, went to the Jews, including Peter, I should say. Peter got the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. That's not true. And this is what happens when you don't have the word of God as a guide. You start to get deceived. You start to pick up misinformation, Chinese whispers, telephones, so on and so forth. 22, what is it there for? The multitude must need come together. They were here that thou art come. Now, James was a saved Jew. And James, like John, had two natures. And James, like myself, James, like you, have two natures. And here James should have known better. And yet, James, like John, made a mistake. John would be complaining back in Matthew chapter 11 about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to his disciples, go and ask Jesus, are you the one that we should be looking for? Or is another? In other words, what's going on here? Why am I in this filthy, disgusting dungeon? What have I done wrong? What's going on here? He didn't realize that Christ came to die for the sins of the world, son of Joseph. But at the second coming, he comes as the son of David to rule and reign. He fell. He stumbled. And yet Christ commends his cousin. But that pictures John having two natures. And here, James has two natures, and he's zealous of the law. He's keeping the feast days and the Sabbath because he could, he was a Jew. And that wasn't a problem. But look at verse 23. Do therefore this we say to thee, we are four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them and be at charge with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. You can't keep the law. Go back to Acts chapter 15. Nobody could keep the law. Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 10. Peter speaking. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
we couldn't keep the law, and we were the chosen race. David, Solomon, Josiah, Samuel, Samson couldn't keep the law. Only Jesus Christ could keep the law. So what's going on here? Well, James has got two natures. And here, James should know better. But James wasn't infallible. His mother, Mary, wasn't infallible. 25. As touching the Gentiles, which believe. Concerning the Gentiles, which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. Okay, so out goes the keeping of feast days if you're a Gentile. Out goes the keeping of the Sabbath if you are a Gentile. Save except only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. That was put on the early church, being the Gentiles, to stop the Jews from stumbling, falling. 26, then pulled at the men. And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Paul has gone back under the law. Paul had become a Jew to the Jews to win them to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But this wasn't necessary. But it happened because Paul loved the Jews. He would tell you in Revelation, excuse me, he would tell you in Romans that he wished he could be accursed if his brethren could be saved. Like Moses would tell you back in the Old Testament, he wanted his people to be saved. And Paul was very much the equivalent to Moses in the New Testament. 31, and as it came about to kill him, Titans came under the chief captain of the band. The Lord Jerusalem was in an uproar. They hated Paul. And ask yourself this, are you hated? If you're not hated, what's going on? Does the world rub along with you nicely? 36, for the multitude of the people followed after crying, away with him. Kill this man. We hate Paul. We hate Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. They reject the Holy Ghost. Acts 7, they reject God the Father. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And once again, the Jews hate Paul. But Paul, to his credit, has gone into the temple. He's taken a vow. He's offered a sacrifice to Jehovah. He wants the Jewish remnant to know that he's not overthrowing Moses. But he's making it clear that Moses and the commandments couldn't say those in the Old Testament. It couldn't say those in the New Testament. And therefore, Paul has gone back under the law to get the Jews saved. God gave the Jews 40 years from 30 AD to 70 AD to get right with him. And when that temple went down in 70 AD, you would have thought that that would have been a message to the Jews to repent, but it didn't. They remain in unbelief. They continue to wander and will do so until the Lord turns back to them during the Great Tribulation. But one final comment from this piece of scripture from 24. That thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. If you go to Romans chapter 3, just to be double sure that you can't save yourself by keeping the law. You can't save yourself by going to church. You can't save yourself by getting baptized. You can't save yourself by receiving the Eucharist. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there's no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You can't be justified. You can't be exonerated. 
in his sight, being God, by the deeds of the law, by the works of the flesh. Okay, you are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are kept saved by believing on him. And let me just further clarify that, that once you have believed on him, you are baptized in the body of Christ, and you are sealed until the day of redemption. That's God's good pleasure. It's God's good pleasure to get you saved and to keep you saved. Now, you can't get any more saved than you already are, but you can stay in fellowship with the Lord. And you do that by having a good prayer life. I'm reading the Word of God. So there you are, an overview from my current study of Acts of the Apostles, looking at chapters 19 to 21. And there's no second blessing, in case you missed it, from 19. You've got men, not women, that were proselytes, not yet saved, and they come into contact with Paul. Paul lays his hands on them, and they get the Holy Ghost, speaking tongues, which were known languages. And off they went into the local synagogue, preaching to unbelieving Israel. Crispus, from 18.8, heard the word of God, didn't have anybody lay hands on him, and on top of that, doesn't speak in tongues or prophesy. So, it's very rare to get two people in the book of Acts coming to the Lord the same way. Acts 2, the apostles speak in tongues, being men, not women. Known languages, not gibberish. And they are doing so to rebuke unbelieving Israel. Acts 10, Cornelius and his friends speak in tongues, being proselytes to Judaism. Men, not women, and they do so to rebuke Peter's unbelieving friends, unbelieving Jews, who didn't think the Gentiles could receive the, the Holy Ghost the way that they did. And finally, again, 19, 1 down to 8, you've got men, not women, that have come into contact with John, proselytes, not saved, of course, hence why they need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. From 20, uh, excuse me, from 19 going to 20, you've got idols being ruled out, you've got idols being condemned, you've got the belief of a priest, turn the wafer into the body of Christ, turn the chalice, the wine, the blood of Christ being ruled out, being uh, condemned in scripture, and that is referred to as transubstantiation, a very ugly word. And Paul said no, that men can't make gods with their own hands. You can't turn the wafer into almighty God, that's a blasphemy, that's a dangerous fable. And here Demetrius is very worried that he's going to go to business and Demetrius and co. made idols, statues, images for Diana, a female deity, and Mary is very much a female deity for the Catholics today, and yet they won't admit it, but that's the truth. Uh, 25, 26, and 27, verses 5, 6, and 7, you've got the Jews keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because they are Jews, not Gentiles, and on top of that, they are keeping the first day of the week. Whereas today, most of us which are saved are probably Gentile, and therefore we keep the Lord's Day, being a Sunday, not a Saturday. And we have no business keeping the feast days, because we are Gentiles, not Jews. Paul gives a final briefing from 17 down to 31 to the elders uh, from Ephesus. And this is concerning a group of men, not women. Elders, not priests. There's no priest. Uh, in the early church. In fact, the only time priests arrived would be probably the second going into the third century. 
And he warns very clearly that they're saved by their faith in Christ alone. From 20, 24. He is no longer responsible for anyone's blood. He's preached the truth. And it would eventually cost him his life. He'd be decapitated by uh, Nero around 67 AD. And he warns him that grievous wolves, false teachers, 29, were entering from among them, not sparing the flock. And that is still very much relevant to today. They're going to teach perverse things like faith and works and he's watched uh, and remembered to warn these people for three years with tears. Paul was a very emotional man. But from 2118 down to 26 you've got James, the Lord's half-brother, wanting Paul to go back under the law to re reaffirm the Jews, to put their minds at rest that all is well. It wasn't necessary and Paul was scathing of that from Galatians, and yet here Paul goes the extra mile. And he goes back into the temple, he shaves his hair, and he offers a sacrifice or two to Jehovah to show, along with these saved Jewish men, uh, 25, 26, that they are still following the Mosaic Covenant. That doesn't help the larger population, 31, 36 they want to kill Paul and Paul is detained and you'll read from 22 23 and 24 that he has to give an account of himself to Felix Festus and King Agrippa and uh, this Sunday God willing I will be starting Acts chapter 26 so keep me in prayer please and keep the UK in prayer as we go from uh, being part of the EU to being a sovereign independent nation again. We are told to pray for our leaders, as wicked as they are, as ungodly as they are, we are told to pray for them. So pray for the new Prime Minister, Mrs May. Yes, she's a very ungodly woman. Yes, she was responsible for the same-sex marriage bill, but the powers that be are ordained of God. And even Christ would say to Pilate that he had no power if it hadn't been given to him from heaven above. So pray for those in authority. And uh, I hope this has been a blessing to you all. And uh, I will leave it there from Acts 21, 36. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, away with him. If you live for the Lord, they're going to hate you. It will start with your family, your friends, your work colleagues, and probably your neighbours. They're going to hate you. But rejoice in the fact that they hated Christ, they hated the prophets, and here they hated Paul. So if you're hated, if you're despised, you're in good company. But if you are thought of highly, if you rub along with the world all of the time, something's wrong. Food for thought. So you are. The Lord bless you all and Maranatha. Just a quick PS, if I may, and say that if you read Acts of the Apostles, and you should do, it's a great book, always keep in mind that it is just that, the Acts of the Apostles. What the Apostles were tasked to do was just for the Apostles. They would write the New Testament, they would travel the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, what they forgot, we will never know. So if you come across people which claim to be able to do what the Apostles could do, you're dealing with deceived people. And on top of that, quite possibly demon-possessed people as well. The Word of God told you very clearly that the Jews require a sign. And that's what's going on from Acts 
18 and 19. You've got Jews getting saved and Jews trying to get other Jews saved. And because they wouldn't get saved, the Lord God allowed them to speak in tongues. It's a rebuke. So don't get caught up in this charismatic, ecumenical, one world religion movement. It's a very deceptive movement. It's a very popular movement, and yet it is a counterfeit movement. If you're saved, that's wonderful news. All you need is Christ to be saved and to grow in grace, the Word of God, being the King James, of course. So just a very brief PS, and I'll just jump out a camera shot to show you how pretty it is today. It has been very wet over the last little while. You wouldn't think it was July. But uh, this, of course, is my open-air pulpit, and it's always a blessing to come here and uh, make messages such as this. I should say that I did come up here before the June outreach to do my overview from Acts uh, 19 to 21, but due to technical problems, I had to delete the audio and the visual, and here I am about a month later returning to re-record it and to hopefully preach some good sound doctrine. We're very much needed that today, are we not? And I'll just leave you with that beautiful backdrop to look at, and uh, hopefully you were able to read along with me this morning with your Bibles open. All of the Acts of the Apostles that I've done over the last 13 months are online. You can download the MP4 visual or the MP3 audio. And uh, God willing, come the end of this month, July the 31st, Acts should be finished. And if my reckoning is correct, if my estimate is correct, that means come August, 2016, I can start the book of Revelation. In the meantime, you got many of my morning messages that I was able to record during our great London outreach. And uh, I think I put on three so far. There's about another seven or eight to go, I think. From memory, I did about 12. So, about another eight to go or nine, I'm not sure. Some of the sermons I did were over two or three mornings, but as you know, it was a great opportunity to preach the gospel, to give out tracts, and to meet up with like-minded people who love the Lord God, who want to do great things for him. And I will once again wish you every blessing and hope you are all well and safe in the Lord, relaxed in the Lord, hope you're all reading your Bibles, I hope you are all rejoicing in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you are doing something to make a difference. Let's try and get a legacy. Let's try and leave this world with a legacy. Let's make a difference to our countries, wherever you are in the world. Let's try and do something for him. Start small and build up, and if you want any of our tracks, drop us a line, and we will be more than happy to post them out to you. So that's it, and I will sign at this time, and wish you every blessing and Maranatha.